This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This fresh look at the Gospel of Matthew highlights the unique contribution that Matthew's rich and multi-layered portrait of Jesus makes to understanding the connection between the Old and New Testaments. Patrick Schreiner argues that Matthew obeyed the Great Commission by acting as scribe to his teacher, Jesus, in order to share Jesus' life and work with the world, thereby making disciples of future generations. The first gospel presents Jesus' life as the fulfillment of the Old Testament story of Israel and shows how Jesus brings new life in the New Testament. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Patrick Schreiner about his new book, Matthew, Disciple and Scribe, The First Gospel and Its Portrait of Jesus. Dr. Schreiner is Assistant Professor of New Testament Language and Literature at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. He is also an elder at Christ Church Selwood in Portland. Schreiner is also the author of The Body of Jesus, A Spatial Analysis of the Kingdom of Matthew, and The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross. Dr. Schreiner, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's good to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, and I wonder if you could begin this interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. Yeah, so um, I grew up in a family that was very interested in biblical studies because my dad teaches in, the, in that uh, area. And some people might think that um, because of that, I may have known like Greek early on. But funny story, actually, my dad tried to teach me Greek on one vacation and um, I decided it wasn't worth it when I was younger. So I got into it actually like everybody else, many people in terms of just being interested in church ministry, uh, through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ and going on staff at churches and then going to get trained and becoming interested in some more academic questions. As I went through, I just realized that I love school so much and I wanted to keep going. So I went on and got a PhD in the New Testament and specifically in Matthew. So um, yeah, it's just kind of continued from the days of loving and learning from the Bible and asking questions about the Bible that um, I had interest in, in terms of how do we answer these questions. So that's kind of been my journey to coming into biblical studies. And then now, as you said, I, uh, I have the privilege of teaching here at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, uh, full-time here in New Testament and Greek and some other things. Yeah. And, and so that, that story has now, um, helped you produce, you know, this book. And I wonder how, you know, how did you come to write this book? Like what inspired you um, to create and, and research on this topic? Yeah, so as I said, Matthew was um, the topic for my dissertation. Uh, really, the love of Matthew, the first gospel in the canon came from uh, my seminary days. My um, supervisor is a Matthew scholar, and he, in the first kind of intro class, just blew my mind with Matthew. And from that day on, um, I just wanted to study this gospel. And so I decided to do work on it for my dissertation. And so 
Um, that, that's really where it all started in one sense. But I did my dissertation, something very specific, Kingdom and Matthew, from a spatial perspective. And this book was more me trying to step back and look at Matthew from what we could call like a biblical theological viewpoint and even maybe a hermeneutical viewpoint. Um, I'm increasingly convinced that uh, Matthew is purposefully at the beginning of the New Testament canon and really to enter into the rest of the Bible or rest of the New Testament, you need to enter through Matthew um, and he's giving us training in terms of how the new and the old relate. And so I like to say it's kind of like the threshold through which to walk into the New Testament that's pointing back always to the Old Testament, but also showing what's new in Jesus. And so it's not a commentary on Matthew. It's more of a thematic study on Matthew, looking at how he uses the Old Testament, how he shifts the Old Testament, how the new and the old interrelate. Um, One thing that I say at the beginning of the book is, I'm trying to pay attention to how he tells the story of Jesus, the words that he uses, and the stories that he tells. Um, I think when you first look at the Gospels, many times you think, man, these are all the same thing. It's kind of saying the same story. John's a little different, but especially the synoptics are the same. But um, really, if he begins paying attention to the details, all of the Gospel writers are doing something unique with their literature. And so I just wanted to step closer and help uh, readers step closer to Matthew's gospel and say, hey, how, how is this echoing the Old Testament story? How is this completing the Old Testament story? And how is it moving the story of Israel forward? I think that's that's not the only lens through which we can read Matthew or the gospels, but it's one of them. And I think the fact that Matthew begins with the genealogy actually is telling us that's the way he wants us to read his gospel. He wants us to read it through the lens of the Old Testament. So um, yeah, I, I, I didn't see a lot of other books that were kind of um, big biblical theological views of Matthew. I really like R.T. France's book. Um, now I'm forgetting Matthew Evangelist and Teacher. Now I'm forgetting the title of it right now. But Oh, it's like um, Interpreter and Teacher or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And and that's really good. But that was actually his like intro notes to his commentary that didn't fit into his commentary. And so he put it in another book. And he's got a ton of great stuff in there. Um, but it doesn't really go into the actual gospel. It more just steps back and looks at who Matthew is. Um, and so I wanted to do both who is Matthew and then who is Jesus. So that, that's kind of the purpose behind it. Right. So it's it's filling that void, you know, and that that need in, in scholarship, especially on the book of Matthew. And so you began in chapter one by setting the stage for your argument by introducing Matthew as a scribe and disciple. And I was wondering, why is that an important place to start? Yeah, so um, there's times in other biblical books, uh, actually more clearly, I think, that the author kind of peeks behind the curtain of their writing and waves to their audience. <laughs> and so you think about texts in, like in Mark 13, where you have that parenthesis after he's talking about the abomination of desolation, uh, and he says, let the reader understand. I think that's Mark kind of stepping back and saying, hello, reader, I'm over here. I want you to pay attention here. Um, you've got another text. I'm going to get the answer to your question, but this is setting it up. You've got another text in John at the end, the very famous text where um, John 20, I think it's 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, but these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing in him, you might have uh, life in his name. And, and there's another instance where John's kind of saying, hey, I've been telling the story, but now let me step 
over and kind of tell you what I've been doing. Um, there's also an instance in Matthew, most scholars think, that Matthew is actually stepping aside and saying, hey, reader, I've got something to tell you as well. And that's found in Matthew 13, 52. And that's kind of um, the framework through which I wrote this book. So in Matthew 13, 52, it's actually Jesus who is speaking, but it's obviously Matthew who is writing down these words, if you believe that Matthew is the author. Um, and we could get into that a, a little bit in terms of how much my argument depends on that. But um, Jesus, this is at the end of Matthew 13. Jesus is given the kingdom parables. And he says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And everyone from origin to the modern day to the medieval period, everyone, most people have said that this is not only Jesus saying this, but this is Matthew actually describing who he is. He's saying, I am like the scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, who brings out treasures new and old. So that's the framework that I use. And I use disciple and scribe because if you look at the Greek text, um, that word for trained actually comes from the word for disciple. And so you could almost translate every discipled scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out what is new and what is old. And what, what I think Matthew's doing here is he's saying, I was trained by this teacher of wisdom, Jesus, who came and told me how the new and the old relate. And so therefore I'm writing my gospel kind of with that framework. And um, if you if you think about Jesus in that time, it was the religious authorities who actually continually questioned him. But I think what Jesus is doing, and others have made this argument, Chris Keith specifically, Jesus is creating an alternate scribal school through his disciples. And they're mad at these disciples. You think about the text in Acts. They say, who are these unlearned men? These people haven't been trained in the right school. And I, I think the point is not that they necessarily don't know how to write or that they're not rhetorically or, or have rhetorical ability, but rather the text in Acts is probably saying, I think that's in Acts 4 that it comes up, um, rather they're saying these people don't come from the right tradition. They don't come from the right school. And I think the same thing is happening with Jesus. Jesus wasn't trained in the right tradition according to the, the religious authorities. And so what he does as he trains a new scribal school through his disciples. And one of those disciples, I think, is Matthew. So just stepping back, all, all this means for Matthew 13, 52, is that at least one of the lenses through which we can, and I think should look at Matthew, is the gospel of Matthew, is as Jesus, as a sage, a rabbi, a teacher of wisdom, and Matthew as his disciple and scribe, who passes on the tradition of Jesus by showing how Jesus completes what is old and he is what is new. And so um, if, if you kind of ping back over to Matthew 28, the famous Great Commission text, um, Matthew is given the instruction that he must make disciples of all nations. I think one of the ways he makes disciples of all nations is by writing the story of Jesus and, and alternating the new and the old. So that's, that's kind of the framework for the book. That's not all that I do within the book. Um, but it, it's important because I do think it gives us a lens through which we can view Matthew. Um, another text just to point to that's not in Matthew, um, Luke 640 says, a disciple is not above his teacher. So Matthew is not above his teacher, 
but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And so he's passing on the tradition of Jesus and he he's coming to tell how Jesus kind of like I said earlier fulfills and completes that Old Testament story. Right. Yeah, and, and that's an amazing kind of framework to dive into the content. So so then in chapter 2 you dive, you know, into Matthew's literary form as a scribe. And how do his kind of convictions and methods shape his gospel? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So um in chapter 2 I argue that kind of Matthew's basic conviction through his gospel is, is summarized in that word fulfillment, that Jesus comes and he fulfills the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot of debate about that, what that word means, but if you go back to the Greek and you kind of look at how it's used, it can be used kind of in a spatial sense of like a cup being filled up, so it's fulfill, filled up to its brim. It can be used in a more temporal sense that something is brought to its completion. I think those two kind of images of like temporal and spatial fulfillment kind of makes sense that it's, it's not that he's getting rid of what is old, but rather he's filling it up to its brim. He's bringing it to its telos as we could say. So that's his conviction. Where did he get that conviction? Well, he got that conviction from Jesus himself. The arrival of the sage Messiah made him realize that I need to kind of like, I think what happened to Paul, I need to rethink Israel's history in light of this Jesus figure because he's the fulfillment of our hopes. So, so what happens in light of that? Well, what happens, the result, is that Jewish history, not just Jewish history, but all history is united under this Messiah figure. So what Matthew does, therefore, is he writes stories that mirror, or as I say in the book, they're shadow stories that mirror Old Testament stories because he believes that all history is now united in this Messiah figure. So what this means is that all of history, and particularly Israel's history, and I like to think of history in terms of time, space, and people, are unified in the Messiah. So when Matthew speaks of rivers, he, I think, is alluding to other rivers in the Old Testament. When he mentions mountains, he's alluding to other mountains in the Old Testament. When he mentions people, he is alluding to other people in the Old Testament. And he's always showing how Jesus both completes that story and he moves that story forward. So. Uh, when Jesus speaks in the parables in Matthew 13, it's pretty clear contextually that he's fulfilling the hope of this sage king who would come. So you think about the text in Isaiah that that uh, one from David is going to come and he's going to have a spirit of wisdom and of insight and of understanding. And so as he speaks in parables, as he as he gives the law through this wisdom lens, he becomes the new Solomon and more than the new Solomon, but that's, that's kind of um, his convictions and methods. And so um, seeing everything as kind of a shadow story. I, I think people like to look at certain parts of Matthew and say, well, that's a shadow story. That's a shadow story. Um, but then they sometimes stop in other places. So for example, Matthew one and two, many people are like, oh yeah, these are all shadow stories because, or it's typology or allegory or whatever word you really want to use. But then they get to parts towards the end and they stop seeing it. What I tried to do is say, well, it's not just in Matthew 1 and 2. It's actually in the whole gospel. I think what Matthew is trying to do, especially in the beginning, is he's setting up his narrative, kind of screaming at you, fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. So if you look at Matthew 1 and 2, you can see that he uses that word fulfill more than any time, more than any other time in his gospel. It's kind of actually the word kind of drops off after that. But what he's doing is he's training his readers how to read the rest of the narrative. So the fact 
that he might not use the word fulfillment or quote from an Old Testament text for four chapters doesn't mean he doesn't want you to keep looking for that. I think he kind of shouts at his readers and then he quiets down as he goes on. And I think um, sometimes we, we get almost too literal with reading the Gospels. We're like, well, he doesn't say this fulfills the Old Testament, so we can't read into that. And I say, no, 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 no. You must read into it because Matthew told you how to read in the first two chapters. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. And so, yeah, so that conviction of a fulfillment of bringing you know, Israel's story to completion and pushing it forward is shown in both the vocabulary, but also, you know, in just the narrative of the whole book of Matthew. Um, so then you move to part two and you spend part two examining the data of Matthew's gospel. And you begin with Matthew's presentation of Jesus as a similar yet different David. Why does Matthew connect Jesus with David? Yeah. So um, in the second part of the book, what I try to do, the first part is kind of giving you that framework. And the second part is showing you what the, how the scribe works is how I describe it. So like now let's actually get into the gospel now that we've stepped back and kind of developed a framework. Let's use that lens and begin looking at some of these figures. And what I, what I try to do for all of these figures is um, not just look at the figure, but look at events connected to the figure. And so um, I, th- I think we, we, we like looking for the new David or the new Abraham, but I tried to tie um, some sort of concept or event to each figure. So David is connected to kingdom. Um, Moses is connected to Exodus or new Exodus. Abraham is connected to family. And then I connected Israel with exile. So um, I begin with David and I begin with David because Matthew 1.1. I think when people come to Matthew, they usually think of Jesus as the new Moses, which I completely agree with. Um, But the fact that Matthew begins by saying this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he doesn't even mention Moses right there. Um, Now, I, I think Jesus is the new Moses too, but the first words that he gives is he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, and he's the son of David. So he's telling us right away, I want you to think of this Jesus figure in light of the promises that were given to David. So you think back to 2 Samuel 7 and the promises that were given to him in terms of a son that would reign on his throne forever. So I, what I say in my book is monarchy is maybe the chief or or I don't, you know, I, don't know, I don't even remember the word I use, but maybe the chief metaphor that is used for Jesus. Matthew wants us to see Jesus with a crown upon his head. And that's maybe the first thing he wants us to see. So you begin tracing that out. Uh, Jesus is the son of David. Then he's born in the city of Bethlehem. He grows up in Nazareth. And that a lot of people debate about what that means. But um, that comes from Hebrew, Netzer, which is a branch. And there's going to come a branch from the stump of Jesse. So continually in Matthew 1 and 2, Matthew is showing us this is the son of David. This is the son of David. This is the son of David. But what, what's shocking about Matthew's presentation in one sense is that you expect Matthew to come in or Jesus to come in and you know fill the f- fulfill the hopes of David that he would sit on the throne that he would reign over Israel that he would conquer their enemies that he would bring bring peace and flourishing to the city but what you find is he's in the city of Bethlehem and there's another king there there's king Herod and he actually gets exiled from his city and then actually most of the gospel Matthew 3 through 20ish He's in Galilee. He's not even in Bethlehem. He's not even in near Jerusalem. And so you you think, and you're like, wait, why is this king exiled? But then 
if you're paying attention to the new and the old, that framework, you think back to David's life. What happened when David was anointed as king by Samuel? Saul was not happy about it. And David continually was on the run, not only with Saul, but with Absalom. He would have to leave his city continually because people were after him. And I think that's the same thing that's happening with Matthew so, or with Jesus. So what Matthew is trying to do, I think, is show you this Jesus figure is the son of David. And you can see he's the son of David because his life imitates, it mimics many of the things that happened in David's life. And so just as David went into exile, so Jesus must go into exile. And then when he returns to his city, what you find is that he's actually defeated by his enemies, but that is, of course, his great uh, victory through his defeat. And so if you actually look at the end of the gospel, when he comes back to Jerusalem, much of the text is is actually given from the Psalms, much of the inner text that uh, Matthew uses. And so um, when he's in the garden and he's talking about his soul being sorrowful, that's directly from the Psalms. And if you look at the Psalms as a type of David, Davidic type literature, then I think Jesus is actually completing David's story by showing, yes, this is the son of David. Yes, this is the one who will sit on the throne forever. But the way he's going to do this is by death and exile and mocking and scorn. And so it's both, this is where it's both new because it's not what they expected and it's old because if you begin going back and actually rereading like Richard Hayes type idea, reading backwards, if you begin reading back into the story of David, you're like, ah, oh, this was here all along. We just couldn't see it until Jesus showed up. And so that, that first chapter, what I try to do is show you kind of the geographical journey of the son of David. First, he's in the city of David, then he's exiled, then he returns to the city of David. Right. And and then you use, you kind of keep focusing on the idea of monarchy in chapter, in chapter four, and you display how Jesus is an ideal and wise king. Um, yeah, I wonder if you could just kind of shed light on why that is important and how this moves the story of, of David forward. Yeah, you know, and now that I'm uh, the book's done, I I, I kind of want to go back and change this chapter a little bit. Don't tell anyone that, but um, <laughs> I I I kind of wish I would have made this chapter about Solomon. It now it kind of is about Solomon, but here's where I wish I would have changed it. I, I kind of continued the David theme, and of course, so so this is what we usually don't think: like the son of David. Who's the son of David? It's Solomon. So we think, well, Jesus Christ is the son of David. But if you actually look at the words again, the son of David, maybe he's pointing to him also as a Solomon type figure. And you actually have that at the end of Matthew 12. Jesus says, someone greater than Solomon is here. And that's right before Matthew 13. So um, maybe I'll just give you like some new info that I wish I would have said more. I I think I kind of said it, but I wish I would have framed it a little differently now that the book's out and I can't change it. So Jesus is not only like David, but while he's in exile, he actually acts like a Solomon, a better Solomon type figure. In what way? Well, I call him the ideal and wise king because the ideal and wise king, according, according to Deuteronomy 17, was not only to read the Torah, but to embody the Torah. And so as you look at Jesus's life, he fulfills the law, not only by being the king that was promised, but the king who meditates and embodies the Torah. I think a lot of our questions about what fulfill the law mean is solved if we look 
at this through the lens of royalty and not only through the lens of Jesus as the new prophet. What I mean is that when Jesus says something in his gospel, he actually later on in his gospel com- usually completes it. So he, he speaks of um, in the Sermon on the Mount, the famous example, like if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to them. And then what happens in the passion? He's struck on the cheek and he doesn't do anything in return. And so what the ideal wise king was to do was he was not only to teach the Torah, but he was to become the living law for the people. So what you should be looking for kind of hermeneutically as you read Jesus's sayings is look at what he says and then look through the rest of the gospel and say, how does he do this? And it's almost always, yes, he actually embodies it. And so he embodies the Torah and thereby he becomes the shepherd king like David and like Solomon was supposed to be. Now, remember, David was brought from the sheepfolds. He was told to shepherd his people, Israel. And what you find when you come into Matthew is that the leader of, leaders of Israel are not shepherding the people. And so Jesus comes along and he's their healer. He's their shepherd. He gives them food. I mean, you think about Psalm 23. He leads them beside uh, still waters and green pastures. He, he provides food for them. Again, you think we mainly think about that in terms of um, like a Moses type action, which it is, but it's also a Davidic type action. It's also a royal type action. And so um, while kind of the big point of that chapter is that while, while he's in exile, he actually humbly in a shepherd way, in a healing type way, brings flourishing to his nation as the new wise king. Hmm. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that as you read that chapter, you get those overtones of Solomon, and especially with a focus on wisdom. And yeah, I just wish I would have done it more. I'll yeah. have to rewrite it. <laughs> Second edition. That's right. So, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> next, you lay out the relationships that Matthew sees between Jesus and Moses. Um, in your view, how does Jesus resemble the figure of Moses? Yeah, so I think when we think of Moses, we usually think of him as primarily a prophet, which is not wrong. I think it's just we need to expand probably our sense of what a prophet is. And so um, what I saw as I looked through Matthew is not only that he's a prophet like Moses, but that Moses was more than a prophet, or that maybe we should, again, as I said, maybe we should expand our view of what a prophet is. Um, not only was Moses a prophet, but he was a redeemer. And so. Um, you think of Matthew 1 and 2, just going back to Matthew 1 and 2. <clears throat> Moses is a redeemer of Israel uh, out of Egypt who is preserved through the water, right? And in the same way, you have a Herod figure who actually contests Jesus, and you have a Pharaoh figure who contests Jesus, and then that redeemer is preserved through the sovereign hand of God. So it's not just a prophet. He's not just a prophet figure, but he's a redeemer figure. He is a prophet figure in that he delivers the new Torah. So he goes up on the mountain. He delivers the new Torah. I think that's uh, a lot of people have seen that. Uh, what I wanted to point out and others have as well, that he he doesn't overturn the law. Uh, Matthew five seventeen through 20 is the preamble to the, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. I think when we read those, it sounds like an antithesis, like you have heard the law said this, but actually I've got a better law for you. No, 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 no. Jesus at the beginning says, I have not come to overturn the law. I have not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Therefore, those statements, you have heard that it was said was, you have heard from your own teachers, them corrupting the point of this law, but I will get you to the true intention of the law. 
So he's delivering the new Torah and getting to the true intention of the law, the true heart of the law. So when it said, do not lust after another woman, or, or sorry, do not commit adultery, it, it wasn't about actually primarily just adultery. It was about your heart. It was about lusting. And so that was the true intention of the law all along. He's not only, though, a prophet. He's, he, Jesus is also a miracle worker like Moses who redeems his people. And so uh, some of these connections people might find a little far-fetched. But you think about Moses, and what does he do? He throws down his staff, and he grasps the serpent. I think that's almost like a conquering the serpent type imagery image. And what does Jesus do? He conquers the serpent both on the cross and in the temptation. Um, Jesus is known to resurrect dead flesh, and Moses is known to heal leprosy as well. Uh, Jesus is a miracle worker who brings manna from heaven, kind of like Moses. He, he brings them bread. So you see Moses is not only a prophet, he's a redeemer, he's a miracle worker, but Moses is also a mediator who meets with God. So you think about the transfiguration with Jesus. Jesus is the one who actually, his face shines. And actually, if you look at that text in detail, just had an article with TGC that came out about this. But if you look at that text in detail, it's Matthew who's highlighting all these connections with Moses. That He's this mediator who goes before God and shows what it means to actually live out the Torah and then reflect God's glory. Um he, he's also a leader who instructs his people whether what they are to do when they enter the land. I think there's a few other ones that I mentioned, but at the end of Matthew's gospel, he's standing on the mountain looking out over the, all the earth and saying, go make disciples. He's like the Moses who's standing, looking out over the land, saying, go enter the land. I'm not going to go with you. You're going to have Joshua with you. So the point of that chapter was to tie all of those things to the new exodus a redeemer who's preserved so they can go on the new exodus, a prophet who delivers the new Torah so they can go on the new exodus, a miracle worker who's inaugurated the new exodus, a mediator who's showing kind of the end goal of the new exodus, and then a leader who's showing what we must do now that we're on that path of the new exodus. So it, one of the things I did in that chapter was don't just look for the times that Moses is mentioned because he's actually only mentioned a few times in Matthew's gospel. Rather, look for those shadow stories that actually mirror Moses. Mm. Yeah, and I think that has been such a helpful chapter, especially just thinking about how normally we read Moses into the you know the wilderness feedings and things like that. But yeah, to show Jesus as the fulfillment of this Exodus, new Exodus leader, it's just I thought that was very helpful. Um, so then, after connecting Jesus to David and, and to Moses and also Solomon, you identify that Matthew also sees parallels between Jesus and Abraham. Uh, so why is this connection important for your argument? Right. So you go back to uh, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the next figure he mentions. So again, um, we, I think most scholarship likes to point out that Matthew has this kind of mosaic typology but again, the first two figures he lists are not Moses, they're David and then Abraham. And so he's giving a clue to his reader, I want you to look for Abraham and how Jesus completes Abraham in this story. And of, of course, Abraham is known for the promises that were given to him in Genesis 12 in terms of, yes, a new land, but I think a big part of the promises are this new family, the seed that is going to come. And so I look at kind of Matthew's gospel through that lens of family and see this was one of the harder chapters for me to write because you have to do something with the fact that you have in Matthew 10, 5 that he tells his disciples, don't go anywhere among the Gentiles, go only to Israel. 
And then Matthew 15, 24, where Matthew says to the Canaanite woman, uh, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And at the end, he has going to all nations. So what's going on? Um, I think this is where the new and the old kind of paradigm is really helpful because I think what's happening here, and hopefully I can summarize it well, is that throughout the gospel, Matthew is showing that even in Jesus's ministry, he's showing that the Old Testament already, um, maybe what, what's the best word I want to use here, already proleptically told them that this message was going to be for all nations. And so there's kind of a shift even in Jesus's ministry before he's raised from the dead. And so that's the reason why in the genealogy, you're going to have Gentiles in there. Already he's showing you, even in the Old Testament, the line of the Messiah included Gentiles. And then you have the Canaanite woman and he's like, no, no, the, the people who come in are the ones who have faith. So you think of John the Baptist's words, in Matthew, in uh, Matthew three, where he says the axe is laid at the foot of the tree of Abraham. So, so, so this 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 new family, this new redefined family, is coming into being. But it is also true that Jesus and his disciples go first to Israel, and then they are only told to go to the nations after Jesus is raised from the dead and enthroned as the Lord of all. And I think that's a key piece there, that Jesus as the Messiah upon the earth, his mission is to Israel. But once he becomes the Lord of all in a new climactic sense as the God-man, then he's, shown that he's showing that the universal lordship of Jesus means the universal mission of the church. So you have to both, I, I think the reason this is so important and so difficult is I think we either assume through the whole gospel that, of course, Gentiles are, are a part of this, or you assume that they're not any part of it. But the truth is kind of on that nice edge that it's both and, that there's proleptic fulfillment, but then there's something new that happens, especially at the end of the gospel. So what's old about it? What's old about it is that even in the Old Testament, Gentiles were welcomed into the people of God. What's new about it is that they're now, and I think Paul is the one who's actually going to tease us out, they're now welcomed in on the basis not of Torah regulations, but on the basis of faith. And so what is Matthew doing by presenting Jesus as the new Abraham? Well, he's showing that the, Abra that the family of Abraham is expanded. It's expanded now to the rest of the world, to Gentiles and not just Jews. Yeah, that's, that is so good. I really appreciate that as well. Um, so then your last chapter, you focus on Jesus and Israel's destiny. And in that chapter, you argue that Matthew sequences his narrative as the plot of Israel in which Jesus leads the nation out of exile. Yeah, I wonder if you could explain why this arrangement in particular mattered to Matthew. Yeah. So in the last chapter, as you said, I, I argue that Matthew's structure, Matthew is known for his structure is actually mirroring the Hebrew Old Testament uh, canon. And so you have that, uh, the Torah, um, the Torah, um, oh, sorry, the Tanakh, I said it wrong. <laughs> the Tanakh, you have the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim. And so you have the writings and you have um, the prophets. And if you begin to step into Matthew's gospel with that kind of framework in your mind and that ordering, a lot of things start falling into place. And so 
this this argument is um, has been made in a, in a certain way before by Peter Lightheart, and so I'm I'm kind of riffing off him a little bit here. But if you look at the beginning and the end, and then the middle of the gospel, it kind of makes a lot of sense. So the very beginning begins with a genealogy, and actually the first two words in Greek uh, mirror Genesis. I think it's uh, two one and five four with the book of the genealogy. If you go back to Genesis, it's the book of the genealogy of man and then the book of the genealogy of heaven and earth. And so not only with the form of the genealogy, but um, the, the actual words, biblos ganeseos in Greek, you have a very clear indication that he's beginning with creation. And then you go to the next story in Matthew. I'm going to get to the end too, but you go to the next story and there's the birth of Jesus. And you think that's probably the birth of Abraham maybe. And then you have a child who's saved from a king, and we already talked how that's maybe Moses. And then you have him going through water, that's kind of Exodus. And then you go out into the wilderness, and that's the temptation. And then Jesus goes up on the mountain, and that's like Sinai. And you start teasing all these things out. And you have at the very end of the gospel that Jesus stands on the mountain and declares, go out, make disciples of all nations. I'm going to be with you always. And you think to the very end of the Hebrew canon, where you have Second Chronicles, and Cyrus is giving the edict to go out and rebuild the temple. And so then you start saying, wait a second. He begins with Genesis. He ends with Second Chronicles. What's in the middle? Right in the middle is this kind of wisdom text, this monarchy text. So you have the monarchy in the middle. And then you have this kind of prophetic Jesus afterwards giving both hope to his people and condemnation. So he's kind of mirroring all the prophetic hope. So you just start putting all these pieces together. And it seems like, G- like Matthew is actually mirroring the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament canon here. And what's really kind of neat is at the end. So the gospel begins with this idea of um, exile. He says in the genealogy that that it was until the exile. And, and I think if you look at um, some work that's been done on that word, the idea is that they are still continuing in the exile all through the gospel. And so what happens at the end of the gospel, if he's actually Jesus is mirroring the footsteps of Israel, is that you expect that Jesus is the one who's actually going to be going into exile. So if you begin at creation, you go through the whole story. At the end, they go into exile. And so what, at the end, what happens is that Jesus's blood is spilt. And that, that's kind of like an exile image, right? Because as the Babylonians and the Assyrians came in, they conquered Israel. But what happens here at the end is that it's righteous blood. And so the ground or death cannot hold this figure. And so he's raised from the dead. So I think what's happening here is that Jesus is showing, I'm going to walk in the footsteps of Israel. And I myself will go through the ultimate exile, death on the cross, um, forsakenness even by God the Father. But then I will raise from the dead and I will be enthroned over all, showing you that I'm actually bringing you on, re- on the return from the exile. So it's not only that he walks in their footsteps old, but he's new and that the, the exile cannot keep him. And so just kind of looking at Matthew through that lens is, I think, really helpful in seeing how he's alternating that kind of new and old paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. So all of these chapters are um, are just like so helpfully laid out. I really appreciated this book that it is, I mean, very clearly written and clearly argued. And I think that it does exactly what a biblical studies book should do, which is helps us better understand um, the Bible, helps us understand Matthew's goal and context better. So 
I so appreciate it to all of our listeners. They need to pick up this book. Um, but before we go, Dr. Schreiner, would you mind sharing with us uh, what you're working on next? Yeah. Um, so I am working on an Acts commentary right now. And so that's taking up most of my time because Acts is very long, obviously. It's it's going to be more of a pastoral commentary, but um, really it's going to be a lot more biblical theology. I think there's a lot of good historical commentaries and works on uh, Acts. But again, kind of this biblical theological new old paradigm is what I'm bringing to Acts as well. And so that's that's my biggest project. I have kind of a side project off of that, um, a little book on the Ascension that I'm going to have out with Lexham Press at some point. I think it's into the publisher now. And so they just have to go through their processes. And then I'm working on a whole New Testament overview as well. Um, and that's going to be a very different project in the sense that I'm going to be trying to summarize each book uh, of the Bible in about two paragraphs and then give kind of a visual literary overview of each book with kind of icons. We hired an artist for it. Uh, icons connected each section of the book. And then the next kind of four to six pages will be those icons and then paragraphs linked to kind of summarizing what's going on in that section. So mm. what I hope that book will be is kind of a really quick literary one-stop shop visual outline of what's going on in the book, giving you both a theme, a summary, and just kind of a like first stop entry point into what's happening in this letter or book or gospel. Wow. Well, that is exciting. And I can't wait to, to see those when they come out. So to all of our listeners, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. And until next time, take up and read.